a Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. We all agree that great leadership requires astute problem-solving skills, the ability to perform under pressure, and a level of empathy that only comes with life experience. But does that mean that great leadership only comes with age? Well, Jamila Rizvi is a best-selling author, former advisor to the Rudd and Gillard governments, and one of the youngest ever chiefs of staff to a cabinet minister. I first met Jamila in her 20s, when she was already one of the key feminist voices of her generation. Her energy, vision and conviction was infectious. And not long after we launched Future Women, she was diagnosed with a tumour on her brain. Two surgeries later and a long recovery, she is still trying and failing to follow doctor's orders to slow down. In this very special episode, we explore what it is like to be a leader from a young age, how she managed the challenges of people twice her age and her burning desire for greater equality for younger women. Welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Jamila. Thank you for having me. You've been a natural-born leader throughout your entire professional career. So let's start in the playground. Did you know you were a leader from really early on in your life? I knew I was called bossy by just about every adult that I met. (laughs) So I think as much as that can be considered being a leader, yeah, I I was. But as a little kid, I I was kind of taught for the most part that the skills I now would describe as leadership qualities weren't great. Like they they weren't the kind of qualities that as a seven-year-old kid won you girlfriends or, you know, the praise of teachers or whatever it might be, that as a little girl, I think usually if you if you display leadership qualities, people just call it bossy and it sounds bad. So did you squash your natural leadership skills then and try to fit in? Yeah, in a big way. I uh, was a little kid who just desperately wanted to fit in and wanted to be liked And I think I spent a lot of my kind of primary school years just trying to go with the flow. I just wanted to be the person that people didn't notice so much and was kind of part of the cool group and everyone went, yeah, she's cool, but had nothing much else to say about me. The problem was I wasn't very good at squashing my interest in being a leader and I was also not good at squashing my enthusiasm. And the thing about Australian schools are we tend to not like enthusiastic kids. We like you to be a bit cool, a bit laid back. And I am not cool and I am not laid back. Um, You know, I was the kid that used to ask for extra maths problems so I could do them at lunchtime. And And sat in the front row, right? Yeah, and put their hand up and sat up really straight and wanted 
the teachers to tell me I was doing a good job. So I think I always, I had this version of me I wanted to be as a kid and I never got anywhere close. At what age were you that you realised that those qualities were okay and that you were bright and capable and it was all right to stand up and say, I know the answer? Probably not till about 15 or so, around kind of year nine, year 10, I think because I went to school in Canberra where year 10 is where you finish high school and then you do your other two years somewhere else. So you kind of get to be boss of the school and you get that year 12 feeling um, earlier than other kids. And I think that was the year that I kind of came into my own because I did love doing stuff. I was the kid that wanted to edit the yearbook and I wanted to be the lead in the Rock of Stedford and I wanted to be school captain and I wanted to be everything. And when you're in that final year of school, suddenly that's really valuable because all the kids want to remember that year as special. And if you're the one helping to create those memories, I suppose, suddenly that's smiled upon rather than frowned upon. So I think my my loser-like ways suddenly became acceptable. So were you head girl and the lead and everything? Yeah. I finished year 12. If you had counted my extracurricular activities towards my final marks, I graduated twice because uh, I just did everything. And not for the marks because if, I, if I'd done it for the marks, I would have done a whole lot less and just done it better. <laughs> I, I wasn't the kid that was top of everything by any means. I wasn't the smartest at my school. I wasn't the sportiest at my school. I wasn't the most artistic or anything. Um, I just like doing everything. And I've always, I think, had a sense of being in a hurry. I still feel like that. I'm in a hurry to try and get as much as I can done because I'm so conscious that every choice I make in life to do something is also a choice not to do a whole lot of other things. And I want to cram as much as I can in. I know people that went to ANU with you. So you come out of high school, you've achieved a great deal. And by the time you get to ANU, I mean, you're a star on campus. You stood out from day one. So how did you do that, do you think? And were you by then comfortable with the fact that life had handed you a bunch of talents that seemed to translate pretty well into modern life. I don't know who you've been talking to. I certainly didn't feel like that. I, you know, I remember arriving on campus at 17 and not being able to get into any of the bars for orientation week and feeling on the outer straight away. I, you know, at ANU, most of the kids come from all over the country. They don't come from Canberra. So everyone lives on campus and I didn't. I remember always feeling like I just wasn't quite in the group. Uh, wasn't quite where I wanted to be. And I think that was a real theme of my schooling until I just realised that university and the world was big enough that I could just be me and eventually I'd find some people that liked that instead of trying to be something else. And I don't think I really got there until about three years into university and uh, I was extremely cool as I've described. So I ran for student president and I was student president at uni and at university, that's a really big job. Um, at ANU, it's a full-time, like you're paid, it's a salary job. So it's a full-time gig. And that was one of the best years of my life. I had so much fun and it was like I'd been handed this extraordinary opportunity to 
make all this change I thought was important, have a really good time while I was doing it and learn while I was doing it. And I think that was the year I really found my feet and kind of came into my own and had a sense of, yeah, I am a good leader um, and had that sense of people being willing to come with me and sort of seeing that when I had ideas that there were people around me who were like, yeah, we want to do that. We want to be part of that. Well, you were uh, an activist on campus. So what did you run for or run on? What platform? (laughs) Um, It always feels so silly when you look back at it, right? At the time, it feels like the biggest things in the world, but um, not all of it seems silly. So uh, we ran on blind marking for university exams and essays. Uh, we ran with an argument that students' names shouldn't be on their papers, um, that there should just be a number and the teacher shouldn't know who they were marking, which some of the faculty fought ferociously (laughs) against. Wow. Uh, So that was a really big one. We fought for a huge amount of funding to redo parts of the campus that were about undergraduate students because the ANU is such a research institution. You know, it's famous for its researchers. You see them on the news. If you turn on the TV at night, it'll be... Professor so-and-so from the ANU. Um, But I think as a result, sometimes the undergraduate students got forgotten a little bit. Uh, So I think we fought hard for a lot of funding around the undergraduate students. And I developed what was a really collegiate, really positive working relationship with the Vice-Chancellor, who at the time was Professor Ian Chubb, who went on to be Australia's chief scientist. And that was unusual. You know, when you went to the national student conferences or the international ones, most of the other student presidents were locking themselves in the vice chancellor's office and staging a sit-in, right? Whereas like I was being invited to dinner at university house for a chat. We got along really well. And I think over time, we got a lot more, both of us out of that relationship for both the students and the staff as a result, because we had a spirited relationship. We used to argue a lot. But at the same time, Ian Chubb really listened to me and he did something for me when I was student president that I will never forget, which is there were several occasions where he gifted me his power. There there was one meeting I remember where I went in with a list of recommendations for senior staff at the university to make changes that I thought were better for students. It was this ridiculous 200-page document. It was like a manifesto we'd written about how to make the university better. And he walked in and he said, I want this meeting to go on as if we presume all of these changes are being made. You can rebut that view, but we assume we accept everything. And then he walked out. And he was the most important, influential person in this institution. And he gifted 22-year-old me all his power. And, like, I've always remembered that, that as a leader, gifting your power when necessary to other leaders can be the most important thing that you do, that it doesn't always have to be you exercising the positional power that you've got. Well, you've just proven that you were a star on campus at the ANU and that everyone that saw you there or knew you there knew that you were going places. Uh, But they probably didn't know that you were going to have quite the startling career that you've had. What age were you when you started working up at um, Parliament House for... Which office did you go straight to? The first full-time job I ever had was in Kevin Rudd's Prime Minister's office and I was 22, but before that I had worked in some of the minister's offices, uh, the shadow minister's offices when Labor was in opposition a couple of days a week uh, to, you know, fund my beer when I was in second year. 
so by now you've got a fairly good idea that you are uh, a young leader of your generation. And I, and the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm laboring this point is that I'm aware that a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are young women looking for direction about their own leadership skills. And one of the things we talk a lot about is being a natural born leader versus developing your leadership skills. You were a natural born leader. So uh, at what point did you click over to understanding that those natural skills now need to be honed in order to be a proper grown-up leader because you are a proper grown-up leader all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I, I was about to pull you up, but then you went there. Uh, I do think I'm a natural leader, but I still think you have to go learn the skills. You still have to do the work and do the time and you have to learn to plug the gaps that don't come naturally. And all of leadership didn't come naturally to me. I was a terrible public speaker up until I ran for president at ANU. It's one of the reasons I ran. I thought if I have to speak in public every day for a whole year, surely I, I'll be good at it by the end. Like surely I'll stop being scared and my hands will stop shaking when I hold a piece of paper so much that people think something's gone wrong. Um, and it, it's true. It, it Like it did help. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it's a, an approach that works for everyone, but after a year of having to speak at big meetings and student rallies or whatever it might be, I, I just kind of stopped being scared of it. And for me, I think there were a whole bunch of skills that I had to learn. But more than that, I had to learn how to quash some of the problematic leadership skills I had. Like I was definitely um, a young leader when I was at ANU who was someone who thought I was always right. I was the kind of kid that went into the room, listened to everyone's opinion and went, thanks everybody, we're going to do it my way. Um, and I think being student president at ANU was such a good experience because like we, we were kids, but we, you know, we had a $5 million budget. So we, like, we were kids with money and we were making really serious decisions a lot of the time. And we had an impact on really important university policy. So we had to grow up fast. And I learned the hard way in those few years that I wasn't always right and that I needed to slow down. I'm someone who's really enthusiastic, but sometimes my enthusiasm means that I move too fast and leave a giant Jamila-shaped hole in the wall and everyone is grumpy with me. That's a great lesson to learn at such a young age. So you go and work for Kevin Rudd, uh, who's Prime Minister. So does he have any leadership skills? Technically he should have, <laughs> right? But does he? Yeah, he, he most certainly does. I, I mean, I... I, you know, I was, a, I was a kid who was interested in progressive politics who worked on the Kevin 07 campaign. That was the dream job going into that office. Um, it was a really hard job and partly because I probably just wasn't ready, if, I, if I'm honest. And I went from being the top of the totem pole, you know, the student president at ANU with all these staff who worked for me and a bunch of students that I got to collaborate with who we got access to the university administration in a way no one else did. We felt very important to suddenly being in the prime minister's office. And I was the most junior of the junior of the junior and had important jobs like, uh, you know, fetching coffee and getting things photocopied and transcribing everything Kevin Rudd ever said. Um, and, uh, going on trips just so that I could run to the printer for people, you know. So I, I think that was really good for me. I got a real kind of sense of my importance in the world and how much I had to learn. And I think I needed I needed that. And um, Kevin's leadership skills up close, one of the things that really struck me about him 
was that he had a really good sense of where he wanted to go and how to take people there slowly and gradually. And I, I admired that. I remember talking to him about a number of social issues that he really cared about and him saying, not yet. The public's not ready for that yet. Um, and I think he did have a really good sense of, a really good finger on the pulse in, the, in that sense of what the electorate thought uh, and what they were ready for at that point in time. It changes, of course. Um, so I think I learned a lot from him in that regard. But I, I also saw the dangers of trying to do too much all at once. You go from Kevin's office to Kate Ellis's office and quickly get elevated to Chief of Staff. What age were you Chief of Staff of a minister's office? I acted as Kate's Chief of Staff for nine of 12 months when I was oh, 25, I think. Again, natural born leader, but thrown into the deep end, had a meteoric rise at everything you've done. What challenges did you encounter? Because I don't think I've ever heard of anyone being chief of staff at quite a young age. Well, I mean, Kate was pretty young herself. <laughs> she, was <laughs> such a, she was such a baby as well. I mean, she was extraordinary. She still is. But she was so young as well. She was, what, 27, I think, when she was in parliament. She was a minister by 30. So I, I think to an extent it was quite useful for her to have some people in the office who felt similarly. She also needed the wiser heads in the office for sure. But um, I, I think there probably was a sense of, of solidarity um, that we were kind of learning together and we had quite a similar approach. Oh, it was a really steep learning curve. That I mean, that whole office was a steep learning curve. I remember going into Kate's office and her using acronyms on my first day as a policy advisor and I'd call my dad in my lunch break and be like, he was a public servant, be like, what does this stand for? Because <laughs> I didn't know what she was talking about, but I didn't want to admit it. Um, I think that's probably the job more than anything I've ever done where I, I really did fake it a bit at the start, but I got there and I figured out really quickly I was not a born policy advisor, that I was much better in the media and strategy space, um, that I was good at the big picture, but the kind of minutia detail of public policy making just wasn't my skill set. I was much better at articulating the policy and talking about it and writing speeches and media releases and things like that than I was at coming up with the ideas. As someone who's fiercely competitive, how was that for you? Like finding out that you weren't good at something? <laughs> yeah, um, it wasn't enjoyable. <laughs> I remember looking sideways a lot and thinking, why, is, why are they better than me at this? Um, I did my best. I just threw everything at it. And, and sort of hoped no one would notice. But Kate clearly noticed pretty quickly because I think she made me media advisor within six or seven months of starting in her office. She, she kind of did a, did a sideways pivot and moved me into a different trajectory. What skills then as a leader do you think you developed in that role? Because I'm going to guess one of the challenges you had was being taken seriously. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And um, I experienced that the whole time that I worked at Parliament House, but particularly when I was in more senior roles. And it was uncomfortable, I think. I never felt angry. I felt angry in retrospect. I feel angry now I look back on on that. But at the time, I, I, I had a really good case of imposter syndrome. And so when people treated me like I shouldn't have been in that job, I think I often went, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> um, it definitely helped that I worked for Kate, who had experienced the same thing herself. And Kate had a really strong commitment to hiring 
smart young women, you know. Um, I remember um, the childcare policy advisor during the biggest childcare reforms this country has ever seen was a year younger than me, the the year that we made them from, from that office. So um, I don't think Kate was afraid of having younger people on her team. We worked pretty hard, you know. None of us had children. Most of us didn't have partners. I don't think I've worked as hard as I did as those years in Canberra since, and I don't think I ever will, but it was relentless. You know, we did 14, 16 hour days, five days a week. And on the weekend, we'd do at least half that again. We just, we worked really, really hard. And I rarely slept in my own bed when I was Kate's media advisor. It was just constant trouble, constant trouble. Back to the, back to being chief of staff of a minister's office, you would have had to manage Again, we talk a lot about um, managing teams. You would have had to manage people that were older than you and you would have had to manage men. Can you break those down and tell us how you did that? Yeah, there were a few things. I think I learned pretty quickly uh, that young men with a similar background or set of experiences to me approached the job completely differently. I, I noticed that at Parliament House, the younger women were the ones who would stay very, very late in the office and the younger men were more likely to be up networking at the social events on a Wednesday night. And I suspect that got them further than those of us who were buried in our offices the whole night, even though we felt like we were doing the right thing. My female colleagues and I tended to, especially the younger ones, I'm not talking about the ones who had to get the work done, go home for families and who had other responsibilities, but those of us who had no other responsibilities, you know, I didn't even have a cat. Um, And I just thought if I put my head down, and I just work as hard as I possibly can, I will get noticed. You know, Kate or one of the other ministers or whoever, the prime minister, whoever it might be, would come and tap me on the shoulder, put a tiara on my head and say, you're wonderful. Well done, you. That didn't happen. It was the times that I went out and hustled for it that it happened. So that was one of the things I think I recognised early was that when I was managing, that a lot of the young men I managed were managing me. They were, they were playing to my expectations and they were networking with other usually quite senior men in the building and they had connections I didn't have. So that was something I sort of learnt from them and I did find managing some of the older blokes hard because I, I just think they didn't take me very seriously. And my dad was a really good sportsman when I was younger and he always used to say to me, you let your bat do the talking. You don't talk yourself up, you don't show off, you go out there on the cricket pitch and you hit someone for six and then they'll shut up. And I tended to approach it in the same way, um, that I, if I was the best, then no one could underestimate me anymore or mock me anymore. But at the same time, I'm sure there were people, I'm sure there were people who didn't think I was great, didn't think I was up to it. I'm sure that was said. I think every young woman in Canberra gets that. And I think that's just, that's a starting point from my own experience in Canberra. But did it, did it really work? I mean, does putting your head down and doing the work work? Because again, we've got a lot of young women listening to this who that's what they do. But one of the things you and I spend a lot of time talking about inside Future Women is you actually have to develop connections uh, as well because being just good or waiting for the tiara, often it's not going to happen and it, and it won't happen. So how did you then do the networking piece or did you not realise that till later? I think I succeeded despite 
tactically being pretty poor. <laughs> um, um, no, because the tiara didn't come. Um, I think I was advantageous in that because I was travelling with the minister, she would see my work up close every day. So it almost became undeniable to her. And that's something I always say to young women who are talking about how do I get my boss to notice me is that part of your job is managing up. It's not just managing down. You have to manage your boss as well. And I'm not saying that in the sense of, you know, my boss is incompetent, my boss is unstable kind of thing, but people need to be managed. And I think if you're a good employee, you can work out early what your boss needs, the parts of their job they're perhaps not as good at, or the parts of their job they perhaps don't like as much, that it's just not their preference. And I think if you can start to fill those holes and say, I'm going to back you in in the areas you don't enjoy and I'm going to back you in in the areas where you feel overwhelmed or I'm going to back you in in the areas you're not that good at, you can make yourself an indispensable employee. And I think a lot of the time I had noticed that my colleagues would just do the best job they could regardless of who their boss was and then they'd say oh there's something wrong with the boss as opposed to well they're in that position and I work for them so I have to work out what they need and be there for them when they need it and I don't mean that in the sense of going beyond your job description and becoming a slave (laughs) I'm not talking about just doing anything that they need but I think considering the people above you as well as the people who are working for you is really important. I often try and think of a boss as a client, like a long-term client, like I'm working in a firm and I'm selling my services and I want you to come back and book my services again, which means that I have to put forward the best possible ideas. And if I think you're about to make a poor decision or a wrong decision, I have to push hard. But in the end, you're the client and you get what you want. Um, And I tried to approach Kate that way. And I've done that with subsequent bosses that My job is to work to a brief, give the best possible advice I can, but then accept that it's not eventually my call. Like if I'm not the boss, it's somebody else's decision and uh, I have to be able to walk away at the end, but I need to be able to put my best foot forward. And I I think a lot of women in workplaces aren't comfortable, especially when you're young and you're new, you're not comfortable with demonstrating how good you are and demonstrating that something was your idea. The number of women who've worked for me who say, oh, our idea or the team did this. And I'll kind of say, yeah, I know the team did that. And I know what the idea was. I want to know what you did. I want to know what you did. And not being able to take ownership and say, yep, this is what I think. And back in your idea, even if it might be wrong. And back in the fact that you succeeded later, um, even if it feels a bit uncomfortable, uh, like you're bragging, I think that's critical in terms of moving forward and, and being successful. What about managing down? Yeah, I think managing a team is one of the hardest things and one of the most time-consuming things there is. And I think when you become a manager of more than one or two people, one of the first things you have to acknowledge is that at least 50% of your job is now managing those people. And that's a big time suck. This is one of the great tricks of leadership is giving the impression that you have a lot of time for your team while still, I guess, keeping everything moving forward. But, I mean, you're an extremely popular member of staff. The the staff look to you all the time for leadership and for your opinion. And you give the staff an enormous amount of your time. 
uh, and advice for all sorts of projects that they're working on outside of their actual work. How do you do that? And has that always come naturally to you? Because I sense it has. I think I'm quite naturally very interested in people, but I think when you're a manager, you have to remember that everybody is thinking about themselves more than they're thinking about you. And everyone thinks you're thinking about them all the time. <laughs> you know, every you have to remember that everyone's the star of their own story, right? This for many people is draining. Do you get strength from it or does it drain you? No, I get strength from it. I, I feel really validated if I feel like I've helped someone, whether they work for me or not. Like I, all my friends, my sister, my family are sick to death of me giving advice and being a busybody and involved in their working lives. I like seeing my friends succeed. I like seeing just good people that I've met succeed. So I do enjoy it. And yes, I do definitely get energy from it. But I suppose I do I do try to keep in mind that when people are having a conversation with you as their boss at work, they're always thinking about what you think of them. And I, I try and keep that front of mind. I try to make sure people know that I think they're important um, and that they're valuable. And I take the time to tell them that. And I always try and remind people why their jobs matter. Um, I, I worked at a women's media company a few years ago, not Future Women. And one of the things I used to do is uh, every few Saturdays, I would just come in and purposely take over the job of one of the juniors, just to remind myself how to do it and remind myself how hard it was and remind myself how stressful it was, all these tasks that I didn't have to do anymore. And I think that was really useful for me, but it was also really useful for them. And I think that also used to reinforce to me that the way I like to be managed by my boss is not the way other people necessarily like to be managed, that everyone has their own way that they like to be managed by a boss and that actually the way I like to be managed could scare someone else. You know, I'm someone who I like to be given a task and a destination and a date and told off you go get it done, come back to me when it's done. And if if a boss doesn't do that for me, if they micromanage and keep asking me questions, I take that as criticism and I get quite annoyed <laughs> and, and I take it as, well, do you not think I'm any good? Whereas I have had team members who've worked for me over the years who really needed that, who who felt unsupported if you didn't check in with them regularly. And if I'd given them a date and a task and walked away, they would have thought I didn't care about them. So the other thing I always try and do with a new team member is try and figure out how they like to be managed and what motivates them rather than assuming they're going to want what I like. Are you good at giving feedback? I think I'm good at giving feedback. I've been told I'm good at giving feedback. I genuinely am invested in when I do have people working for me. I've never had a position where I'm not invested in the people who work for me and invested in their success, not just for the good of the organisation, but for their personal success and where they're going next. And it's one of the things I think I've admired about you, Helen, while we've worked together is that that vision for your employees beyond working for you, you know, seeing someone saying, you're going to be this one day, I can see it, I can see you getting there, how are we going to get there and how are we going to make it good for our business now but also good for you in the longer term? And I think when you give that to an employee managing them and giving them feedback, even negative feedback becomes easier because they know you're invested in them as a person and their working life, not just their working life with you. Getting feedback, I'm 
not good at. I mean, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at when I get when I get really genuinely negative feedback. I almost always get defensive and try and argue with the person and tell them why they're wrong. And then about a week later, I come crawling back and I'm like, sorry, you're right. I'll try and be better. So I think I'm good at acting on negative feedback, but at actually receiving it, I am very poor. One of the things we touched on um, that I just want to go back to is building those networks. You said in Parliament House, you didn't do it. You were the SWAT who stayed and worked late at night while the boys went out. But one of the things that is a hallmark of your career, and it's often um, something that people say about my career, is building extensive networks of people. How did you do that? And did you do it deliberately and knowingly, or was it more just sort of by osmosis because it came to you naturally? I think it was a little bit of both, if I'm honest. Uh, I don't think I built networks well when I worked in politics because I was so focused on the job uh, that I didn't think it was my job to go out and make lots of friends. It was my job to just do what was needed and there was so much to do. (laughs) Um, But I think after politics, I realised that in media in particular, good stories come from knowing good people, right? That's where stories come from. If you're only focused on you, you don't have any interesting stories to tell. Uh, so I went looking for them and I think I started to see the advantages of being connected to other people and not in the gross, like, how can we use each other way, but in the, how can we collaborate to do something that's going to be a whole lot of fun. And I've had a few opportunities in my career to collaborate with interesting people. There've been times I've met people along the way, people like you, Helen, who I've thought, oh, I'd really like to work with you one day and then just tuck that away in the back of my brain, not take an action to make it happen immediately and not thought, oh, I must make this happen now. I have to hustle now, but just thought I'm going to keep in contact because I like them. I like the way they do things um, and I'd be interested to see what's there in the future. And I think it's about always having conversations, right? You know that uh, conversations about new jobs come up all the time when you are the kind of do the kind of work you and I do that's public and a lot of the time you find yourself saying no because you say, I'm really happy with doing what I'm doing, but you don't have to say no in a leave me alone, never contact me again way. You can just say, oh, I, I love what I'm doing right now, but I so appreciate you thinking of me. You can have the coffee, you can have the lunch, you can have the chat. I think um, we're often worried about wasting other people's times and we don't think we can have the chat. And I, I think it's the opposite. I think making time for a lunch or a coffee or hanging out with people or checking in with someone who you thought was good uh, or effective or interesting is worthwhile because I think a lot of leaders have a false idea that if they have other good people around them, the good people will be promoted ahead of them. It's the opposite. If, if, if you're a really good leader, you hire good people and they will make you look better. They won't make you look worse. They make you look better. What advice do you have for a, a young woman who's, just starting to find her feet in leadership roles, big or small. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you took on some of those big roles? I wish I'd known that the voice in my head wasn't that logical. I think I always assumed that I had this very logical, objective voice in my head rather than recognising that that voice in my head was the product of my upbringing, of society, of patriarchy, of a million teachers and bosses and what they thought I was good at or bad at, 
or that I liked or didn't like or expectations of people who thought I'd be like an auntie or a sister or someone else rather than me and that all of those had combined together to make a voice in my head who I thought was rational. And surprisingly, she wasn't always that rational. So my advice would be to question what your own brain tells you sometimes and remember that when you look at someone else's career and you feel jealous or like you don't stand up to it or you're not competitive or you're not good enough, that they are showing you their highlights reel and that everyone's highlights reel looks good. And if you are comparing your behind the scenes with their highlights reel, of course it looks a bit shit. You know, I don't put on my resume all the jobs I applied for that I didn't get. I don't put the number of times where I've had a boss talk to me and say, "Mm, you made the wrong call today. That doesn't go on my resume. The good stuff goes on there. You know, in fact, fact, if there's a boss who didn't like me at all, their their name doesn't even appear. We just erase them entirely, right? Um, So I think we need to be really careful with comparison because one of the things I've done, I think, particularly over in my early years in the workforce was comparing myself to other people in a way that was unfair and listening to the voice in my head in a way that was untrue. I think that's excellent advice. Some of my contemporaries in journalism are just some of the superstars in this country and you learn very quickly when you're at their table for lunch that you just have to give it up because they're just better at what they do in that area than you are. And the sooner you do that, the easier life is. Any advice for the young women and there's many of them out there that right now in the middle of this crazy period of time in history, just are wondering about whether they're in the right space and in the right career. I think it's worth asking that question. I think a lot of people will tell you we're about to go into a period of prolonged recession. And if it's not recession, at least we're going to have a period of prolonged unemployment, high unemployment. So stick with what you've got and stay comfortable. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I'm not a risk taker when it comes to financial security at all. Um, I'm not a risk taker. <laughs> um, I play it very safe. I think you should always have a backup. I should. I think you should never move jobs or unless you've got a safety net and you've got the next job worked out. I don't think you should take giant leaps unless you've got the money there to support you. I think you should take educated risks. But I think if you're sitting there thinking, I don't think I'm in the right job or I don't think I'm in the right profession or I think I could be doing something different entirely, then I think it's worth taking sensible, risk-averse steps to make that happen. So do it carefully. Do it so you look after yourself and your family. Don't put yourself in a risky financial position. So do it carefully. But back yourself. Don't stay somewhere you're unhappy doing something that makes you unhappy for a few years because you think, well, there's a recession. I've got to wait till things are more stable. Don't do that. That's a guarantee for regrets. Ask smart people you know and you trust or you admire to tell you how they did it. Ask the question. And I think ask for the job, right? Ask for the job. It, you know, I, I, I remember thinking I had no business um, staying at Future Women when I got sick again. I, for those who don't know, I made Helen wait months for me to get better to come and work here in the first place and within a few weeks was like, oh, Brain tumor's back, off again, probably for four months. Um, I thought I had no business at all. But you can only ask. If, if you don't ask, um, then there's no opportunity. 
And I think right now we've got an economy and workplaces that are more flexible than they've ever been. So in terms of trying a side hustle, in terms of doing an experiment, in terms of getting some work experience elsewhere, asking some questions, seeking out new opportunities, I think that's more doable right now than it's ever been. Um, because we're so flexible, because so many of us are at home, because everyone's just a Zoom call or a LinkedIn message away. Let's talk about your brain because <laughs> it, um, you know, along with your leadership skills, they probably go hand in hand, has rarely failed you throughout your young life. And then you get a diagnosis that actually brings into question uh, how much time you're going to have to do all the stuff that you want to do. How hard was that to cope with? Oh, um, so finding out that I had too much brain, uh, that I had a whole big tumor in there that uh, wasn't supposed to be. Um, oh, it was uh, like it was unquestionably the hardest thing that's ever happened to me. And I suspect it will be the hardest thing that ever does happen to me. I think I've largely come to terms with the tumor itself and the fact that it could come back at any time pretty well over the last three years. But that first year was really dark. Look, I don't think anyone manages a brain tumor diagnosis well. I'm not sure there's a version of it where you do it with a plom, but I definitely did it particularly badly. I I think I became extremely mentally unwell. I was terif- terrified. I was dissociating and my negativity bias went to a point that was just comp- almost unfathomable. So negative negativity bias means that if I show you 10 options and five of them have a good outcome and five have a bad outcome, that you focus your energy on the bad ones, that you kind of look at the good ones and go, well, I'll be okay if one of them happens. So let me focus on these bad ones. I did that with my brain tumor diagnosis and I focused on the worst possible outcome, which was not surviving obsessively. And I know it, it took me a good long year, at least probably longer to start focusing on that possibility a little bit less and focusing on it and giving it the due that it deserved uh, mathematically rather than the 100% due that I was giving it early on. I think the one, the one nice thing for me, there's a couple of nice things actually, but one of the nice things about having been unwell and having to kind of reassess everything has been that Everyone you see in the movies and you read about in the books, when they get a horrible health diagnosis, they change their whole life. You know, they leave their husband, they travel the world, they quit their job, they go, I've only got this long, I'm going to go do these things. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to stay alive and do what I was already doing, which is quite a lovely affirmation on how I was living. Like I've got a wonderful family and wonderful partner and child and I love the work I do. And I just want to keep doing it. So that's probably been the one big positive that stands out in my mind from everything is that I've got really good clarity that I'm happy doing what I'm doing now. In terms of stretching your leadership skills then, um, I've always imagined that one of the roles that you'll eventually take is the ultimate one and and, and take the next step into politics, take a step into politics how are you feeling about that now, given, you know, that journey you've been on? At a personal level, you know how there are those bumper stickers that tell you to live life without limits? 
my life has some really clear cut limits now, a lot more clear and more solid and immovable than they used to be. And I can't not, I have to live within those limits. I don't have a choice. Um, and to suggest that I could live beyond those limits is stupid. Um, if I don't take my medication, I will die very quickly. So those limits are important. So to me, the idea of working in, in politics requires a level of relentlessness and a degree of pace that I have experienced up close before and I genuinely wonder if my body could do that anymore with with the disabilities that I have. So I do think differently about a career that I kind of always thought I wanted. I, I wonder if I'm starting to move away from it and I think part of that is because I love what I'm doing now and I found other things that I love doing and part of it is a recognition that it would be a lot harder now. Uh, I want to ask you also about the voice in your head. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you do to overcome it? I'm not great at it. <laughs> I'm not great at the positive self-talk. Um, I think I am mostly a neutral self-talker to a negative self-talker. I live somewhere in between those two on, on the spectrum. I find that the best way to deal with any negative self-talk is to talk it through with someone who I know cares about me. Uh, my friend Claire always says, what would you tell me? If I called you saying I couldn't do this or I wasn't right for that or I didn't look correct for this or um, that no one would like me if I did that, what would you tell me? And whenever we go through that exercise, I'm reminded that the voice in my head is harsher on me than I would be on anyone else in my life and that I allow the voice in my head to say things to me that I would never say aloud to a human being. Even if I really didn't like them, I'd never say it out loud. Um, so I do I, I do think a lot of women relate to that. Um, I think particularly a lot, of, a lot of anxious, high achieving types relate to that. And it, it can be really complex, that that voice in your head, because that voice in your head is also motivating. The voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, that you have to work harder, try harder, be better, or no one will like you. Uh, it's incredibly motivating. It keeps you being the type A personality. It's the it's the voice that makes you stay up until midnight the night before the assignment's due, just putting the finishing touches on it, making it sure it's perfect when you're at school. And so it can be really motivating, but it doesn't mean it's healthy. It doesn't mean it's good for you. And I think a lot of us are scared that without that voice, would I even be any good? The answer is, yeah, you would. And I think pushing back against that voice quietly, deliberately, slowly, and I am very much in the learning stages of this, but saying today I choose not to give in to that thought. Today I choose not to think about that. I was uh, speaking to my sister just before this podcast and we were talking about how negative thoughts re-emphasize. So you can make it really easy for your brain to have those negative thoughts about you and your career and your work. So in the same way that most days I drive my son to kinder. I don't have to think about driving him to kinder because I know the way. I don't have to look at a map. I don't need Google. I don't need anything. I know the way. My brain has established the neural pathway of how to get to kinder so that it no longer requires thought. It's that easy for me to just go to it. Helen, if you suddenly said, I need you to pick up a child from kinder across town in a suburb I didn't know, that requires a lot of effort. 
I need to open a map. I need to look at it. I need to think about where I'm going. It requires a lot of concentration. It's a hard thought to do. I have made some negative thoughts easy because I've thought them so often because I've thought over and over and over and over again, some thoughts about myself. It's like driving my son to kinder. I go there really easily. And the only way to stop myself going there so easily is to go somewhere new and to deliberately choose not to take the easy route. And so I'm increasingly trying to do that inside my own head and realizing what a slow process it is, but it does work. Jamila Rizvi, of course I would have worked through, with you through one tumour, two tumours, and I'll work through with you no, more. no matter what no goes more tumors. on. No more tumours. Whatever happens next, no more tumours. We're not, we're not wishing that on anyone. Um, it's, been a, it's just been a wild ride uh, in many ways, but we're having a lot of fun and I'm so glad that um, this audience can hear from you how exceptional you are and what a great leader you are and uh, thank you for taking the time today. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. And at some point we have to reverse this and uh, someone needs to interview you for your own podcast, Helen. Just putting that on the record. <laughs> I'm learning more about leadership now than I, I ever knew or understood as an actual leader. So there are days when I'm running the FW team and I think, whew, I'm a really poor leader today <laughs> because I fail all my own tests um, because I now know what poor and good looks like. So I'm learning a lot. I wish someone had taught me this. Um, a long time ago, but hey, better late than never. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. <laughs>